Okay, thanks. Um, okay, I want to begin with the story. Um, I did my graduate work, uh, as was mentioned, at Divinity School. So I studied for three years at a non-denominational program where we, where we were being trained as uh, ministers, which the school defined, as I mentioned earlier, quite uh, broadly. And my colleagues have since become chaplains in hospitals, in the army, they do interfaith work for nonprofit organizations, and some of them, even at this point, have their own churches. Um, on the first day of school, as I mentioned just before, I was seated next to a young man named Chris. Um, he's an evangelical. And we ended up spending many hours talking about our families, about our career goals, our backgrounds in education, etc. And at the end of the conversation, Chris, who I mentioned again was an evangelical, turned to me and said, you know, after speaking to people like you, it makes it really difficult for me to believe that all Jews are going to hell. Honestly, I was so flattered. I thought, plus one for Jews, right? Um, I didn't take offense because what was offensive about this on some level? Um, I personally, the least statement, I don't believe that all Jews are going to hell. So it was really his belief versus mine, and he's entitled to his beliefs, and I'm entitled to my beliefs, and the fact that I was making him reconsider and think about his beliefs in a non-threatening way, I was like, this is awesome. And Chris and I became super, super good friends. We were part of a little clique of uh, our crew that got together every Tuesday night. I flew out after his school was over for his wedding in California. We really, really stayed close. Um, and the fact that he believed that I was going to hell didn't really seem to impact our friendship in any kind of way. We did, however, have one incident that caused us a little bit of trouble. Uh, one time at the end of a discussion about our personal theologies, uh, Chris turned to me and um, said, Shoo, I think Jesus is in your life. You just haven't really recognized him yet. And I remember at that moment, like I tensed up a little bit in a way that was really different from when he told me I was going to hell. And I was trying to figure out why, since on the surface, surface that kind of seemed ridiculous. I knew that his saying this was his way actually of implying that maybe I wouldn't go to hell, of him resolving his own belief system with the reality of our friendship, what he knew of me, but it still really, really bugged me and I actually called him out on it. Um, and what I was, when I was trying to pinpoint what was it that was really bugging me so much, um, it wasn't just that he was struggling with his own beliefs, because that I could appreciate but it was that he was imposing them on me. That he was making truth claims about my life and my faith. And I found that very, very difficult. His thought process, while perhaps very well-meaning, was, I think, disrespectful on a very, very deep level. Uh, he did apologize and got removed out. Uh, in 2009, researchers from the independent uh, Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life phoned more than 3,400 Americans and asked them 32 questions about the Bible, Christianity, and other world religions, famous religious figures, the constitutional principle governing religion and public life. And the New York Times reported that on average, people who took the survey answered only half of the questions incorrectly, and many flubbed questions even about their own faith. Anyone want to guess who scored highest? Atheists. Atheists and agnostics scored highest. 
followed by um, two religious minorities. Let me guess the two religious minorities. Mormons and Jews. Mormons and Jews. We, we, we scored amongst the highest. And the results were the same even after research, researchers controlled for factors like age and racial differences, etc. Why? Now, as far as atheists and agnostics, why they scored high, let's put that aside. Why did you score highly on this text, do you think? Ideas. Well, here's my argument, and from here came the title of tonight's lecture. It is because we as a minority living in a majority Christian country are always forced to encounter. And so we take nothing for granted. What do I mean by that? Okay? Jews who are somewhat involved in the secular world, i.e. leave their house, let's say, December time, will notice that things seem different in this country. There's a lot more light. There's music playing all the time at the mall. People seem to be in good spirits. There are sales for about a month at Rockefeller Center. It's a huge tree. Now, if you grew up Christian, these are all norms for December. But as a Jewish kid, you're like, what's all this fuss about? Kanata? And soon you come to realize, nope, there's a holiday called Christmas. And it's even little things. Like as a kid, I remember I had a different bus driver on December 25th. I went to Yeshiva of North Jersey. We had school Christmas Day. But I had a different bus driver. And I remember asking, oh, why today is it not Iris? <coughs> Iris is celebrating Christmas, so she's not our bus driver. There's always stuff. Who's that man in the red suit and the long white beard that seems to be giving everyone else presents but me? Right? We as kids are forced constantly and as adults to encounter the world around us. Um, and so we don't take things and facts and realities of that world for granted. So we begin to learn. If we lived in a majority Muslim country, we know a lot more about Islam. Again, because as Jews, we are forced to encounter Islam very much. We actually are now learning more. Hindu country, we know a lot more about Hinduism. Right? Just by virtue of the fact that there were a minority being forced to confront the majority religion. And in this age of globalization, we encounter other religions all the time. Religion is very much back in the public sphere. There's no neat breaks, no separations. Everyone's talking about religion. And religion causes people to react. Very few people feel neutral about the subject of religion. Now, why? Well, when people come to evaluate religion, um, religion as a category, okay, um, evaluations range all the way from enthusiastic praise on the one hand and uh, bitter condemnation on the other. So religion has been considered by some to be the loftiest expression of the human spirit. It's the most profound expression. It promotes, order, it promotes order and ideas of goodness. It creates community. It has the potential within it for infinite good, inspiring people to do good, giving them a sense of community, of purpose, of connection, etc. That's on the one hand. Religion can be incredible. And, same token you have, religion called a blight on civilization, responsible for superstition, ignorance, hatred, repression, and genocide. Actually, it's the cause of much hatred and oppression all over the world, and there is within religion the potential for infinite bad. We're familiar with such famous, famous phrases by Karl Marx, that religion is the opiate of the masses. Uh, Sigmund Freud called it a universal obsessional neurosis that the entire world was suffering from. That's religion. Um, but I think that when we evaluate religion, 
we need to recognize that there is always a difference between achievement and ideal. What do we mean by that? Achievement. An achievement is what a particular religion uh, actually accomplishes or does on the ground in the world. Right? Religion motivates people's behavior. So if somebody goes um, through the Red Cross to help people in Africa, that religion inspiring that achievement. Religion, Christianity, missionaries, they go and they do good. If religion inspires war, that's an on-the-ground achievement. That's different than the ideals of religion. An ideal in religion is what a religion hopes to do, what it aspires to be, what values the sacred texts within a particular religion promote. And as we know, very often, achievements and ideals come into conflict with each other. And therefore you cannot, when you talk about any religion or religion in general, evaluate it purely based on what it has actually done in this world or what it hopes to do. You actually have to consider both. And again, religion shapes the world so much because uh, it motivates people's behavior. And I think for believers, we hold something very special in common. Um, why I ultimately chose and really loved my graduate experience was that what all my colleagues, what we held in common, and we came from, I know at my graduation there were 18 different religions represented that didn't include denominations of Protestants, okay, of which there were hundreds, okay, um, was that we, the common belief we held in common was that religion and religious communities could be forces for good in this world, um, and that we wanted them to be. Right? That we as a community of believers wanted to say we can stand up for religion being that force for good that we believe it to be. But within that context of this shared belief with my fellow believers in ultimately the goodness or the potential for goodness of religious and religion and religious community, I always felt a bit stuck as an Orthodox Jew. Because how was it that I was supposed to relate to people of other faiths? What was the place of non-Jews in my world outlook and in my reality, um, I always felt like I lacked the theological tools to make sense of the place of other faiths within my religious framework. That this wasn't a discussion on the community table. And I wasn't sure how to, how to approach this. And I want to stress that tonight I am not advocating a particular approach. But I do think that a conversation needs to be had. I think we, as children and as adults, receive many, many different messages about people of other faiths. We live in modern, relatively insular communities where ancient texts meet modern values and realities, and we spend a lot of time as a community trying to navigate between these things um, in this complicated world, but I don't think we spend quite enough time thinking about the place of other religions and how that informs my self-identity as a Jewish person. And how do I make sense of that? Okay, I don't want to get into the merits of studying other religions in depth. And I don't want to even focus on how to speak or behave respectfully to people of other faiths because I think that goes without saying. Um, and it's certainly not my place. I'm not going to weigh in on the halachic aspect of that because it is enough located, it is controversial. But what I want to talk about this evening is what it means to think sensitively and respectfully about people of other faiths. 
And I think that we have tools and texts within our tradition that can at least get the conversation started. So that's what I would like um, like to do with you guys this evening. So I want to go through a whole bunch of texts, I hope everybody has a source sheet, um, that throughout history I think have shaped our attitude um, and the way in which we think and view um, other religions and ourselves within the context of other religions. Okay? Okay. Let's start with, I think, the obvious place, which is the Bible. Um, what is the biblical view of other religions? So again, I am giving just a sample of sources. We're not going to be able to get into a lot right now, but I want to give you a sample. Okay, so the source taken from, this is source number one on your sheet, taken from Shmokhaf, which is the Asarat Hadi Brot, um, says, if you look at Pasuk, You shall have no other gods before me. And then it goes on to talk about all the different, you can't make a graven image, um, etc., etc. You can't bow down to them or serve them, for I, uh, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, etc., etc. Okay. If we had to identify the Israelite biblical perspective on their relationship with God, it seems clear that Israelites are the sole and exclusive recipients of God's revelation. There's no notion in the Bible that God also reveals himself to any other faith or any other community. The Bible, in fact, is a story of God's choosing one family, one nation, one community to carry on his mission, and he reveals himself and his desires to them at times. And that's what's going on. We don't have an idea that God himself is known, except occasionally there are prophets that do speak to other nations, but they are prophets not uh, of our God who have a particular mes- message for another nation. And I want to think about idolatry. Idolatry from a biblical perspective is super complicated. When we're young, we're taught, like, what is idolatry? That people believe it is chair and power. Uh, that's a really primitive, I think, understanding of idolatry. Were there people who believed physical objects that they themselves made had power? Sure. I don't want to discount that as a possibility altogether. But more often than not, physical objects represented deities. And paganism was losing multiple deities. Um, usually there was a patron deity, one which a family recognized as being more significant than others. Um, but idolatry wasn't that they felt these physical objects. And again, we're, we're very familiar with that idea from many of the major shame about Abram. But that they actually believed that they had power. That probably was not the majority view. And some forms of idolatry, as seems to be mentioned, I as a potential reading of Shemot Chav, is that you can't even make any kind of image that, that, that represents the one God. Hashem, it's another form of idolatry. Um, and, and, and the Sin of Egel deals with all of these. But um, again, the definition of idolatry from a biblical perspective is complicated. Um, but idolatry was sinful really only for the Israelites. Why? Because they were an exclusive contract or covenant with God. And being loyal to anyone else was a violation of that covenant. That's why idolatry is not allowed for the chosen people of God. And that's why very often, what is the metaphor used for idolatry? Adultery. Right? Why? Because they're in an exclusive relationship with God and straying from that path is like a human being straying from the contract of marriage. Ah, uh, yeah. Isn't that is a very complicated question, and we will get to what monotheism means in that context. Um, the Bible's perspective on monotheism is something that uh, scholars are arguing to develop. 
um, that isn't obvious from the from the starting out point. So I'm happy to talk with you about that a little bit later. But yeah, Shiva Mitzvah by the way, though, are never actually listed in the text itself. And we'll get to that when we talk about rabbinic Judaism in this moment. Um, okay, so that's our view of idolatry. Torah, not actually terribly concerned with other nations. The sole concern really of Torah is with the Okay, so that's the biblical perspective but from Torah. As you look later, idolatry also becomes something that is constantly mocked and seen as ridiculous. This is certainly true in the prophets, both the former and latter prophets. If you look at source number two, um, this is from uh, 1 Kings 18.25-29, the story of Eliyahu and Har HaKarmel, that will be the Torah in two weeks. Um, and it talks about, if you want to look, we can just read it quickly in English, source number two. Eliyahu said unto the prophets of Baal, and by the way, he's talking to Nebiah Baal who are amongst the Jews. Um, right, he gives them this test. I'm not going to read it inside. I'll summarize it for you. He tells them, you guys choose a, a, a cow, and I'm going to choose a cow. You pray to your gods, I'm going to pray to my one god. Let's see who answers. We can't use any fire. Right? In fact, he pours water over his. Right? And they, they're praying, and the Baal are praying, and jumping around, and dancing, and cutting themselves, trying to get their gods to answer. And Eliyahu is just constantly mocking them. Uh, if you look at verse 27, he says, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he has gone aside, or he's on a journey, or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awake. And he says to him, Oh, keep going. Maybe your god's sleeping. Or he went for a stroll. Keep going. Eventually he'll answer you. Right? There's this portrayal of idolatry as kind of ridiculous. Um, there's a, a mockery. It's not worth that much. Um, but again, in this story, as in many stories, it's directed at the Nasser it's not the concern is not really what other how other nations are worshiping their gods. The concern is that Bnei Israel will end up worshiping idolatry, which is detrimental to their entire existence. Um, really, again, not terribly concerned with non-Jews. Again, disparaging statements are made about idolatry and even others who worship idolatry, but it's really always made for the sake of Bnei Israel um, to throw into contrast their belief in the one God. Okay, so from a biblical perspective, again, we're not terribly concerned with other religions in the Bible. Primary concern is Israel, the name Israel. And if we are concerned about the influence of other nations, again, it's because we are in this, we have signed this exclusive contract with God. Idolatry is seen as ridiculous and meaningless, especially when compared to the omnipotent God. And so many stories telling us of God's power that you know, for you to worship an idol is just insanity and dumb. Okay, um, that's one view, biblical view. But I do want to call your attention to a very famous pasukah because we sing it a lot. A uh, very famous pasuk from the book of Yeshayahu that deals with the end of days um, and a vision for the future. This is source number three. Even them I will, will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be acceptable upon my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all people. Yeshayahu here and in other places in Parakbet and Parakid Aleph, Yeshayahu has this grand universal vision. Or when you think about the eschatology, the end of days, we don't have a notion of mass conversion to Judaism. The only thing, there's a mass conversion to the worship of the one God, to monotheism. But we don't have an idea within the Bible that all other religions and forms of worship will be wiped out. 
Here, the Bina Mikdash is called a bayit for all peoples of the world. Everyone, no matter what your religion, sure, you're believing in the one God, whoever your particular practice is, you're welcome to come to God's house and worship in the Bina Mikdash. Um, there's a hope that's being described even for pagans in the unfolding of God's providential plan. So there's the recognizing of the one God that's essential, but not the practice of Judaism in particular. Is this tolerance? How should we understand this? There are other people who contradict this, but it's out there. Ultimately, a conclusion, but we'll conclude this segment of this. It is difficult to describe the biblical attitude towards non-Israel as far as their religion. Um, a because paganism was seen and belief in other gods was seen as potentially so detrimental to themselves that it is seen as rather harsh. But again, the Bible's primary concern not really about the religion of other people. Okay. Um, similarly, pinpointing the rabbinic attitudes towards other faiths in the times of the Gemara can be equally difficult. If you look at source number four, this is a Tosefta from Sanhedrin. Uh, Rabbi Lezer said, All Gentiles do not have a share in the world to come as it is written. The wicked shall return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God, etc. Rabbi Yoshua said to him, If the text had said, The wicked shall return to Sheol, all nations, and with quiet, then I would say, like you said. But now the verse said, Those who forget God. Behold, there are saints among the, na- among the nations, and they have a share in the world to come. Um, this is a machloket, where we have both sides of the issue. On the one hand, all Gentiles, no share in the world to come, they don't get it. Here, the only people of access to God, to salvation, are Jews. And on the other hand, Rabbi Yoshua saying, No. As long as the person is a good person, they do have access to salvation and to the world to come. Um, to talk about how we rule, how we talk in issues like this, also very complicated. What does that mean? But essentially, rabbinic Judaism came down on the side of Rabbi Yeshua. That as long as, how you brought this up, a Gentile would keep the Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noah, eternal salvation is available. Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noah, the seven Noah high laws, the rabbis derived uh, from the parshut about Noah, um, and they are. Uh, Abram and Achai, right? Not being allowed to eat from um, the limb off a living animal. Birkat Hashem, which is really a euphemism for cursing God. Gedel, stealing. Din, you have to set up courts of justice. And then the big three. Uh, adultery, idolatry, and murder. Okay, those are the seven. You ever want a good way of remembering it? Right, it's the three big ones. Right, the Arab And then it goes in alphabet of Avsat and Emil Anyway, uh, okay, so that's the, that's the uh, seven mitzvot b'nei noach. But essentially we have, um, we have that idea that righteous Gentiles have salvation and have access to salvation. Um, but then we have the following statement. Talmud of Messiah, 114b, 5. The graves of Gentiles do not defile. They don't make anyone tameh. For it is written, and you, my flock, the flock of my pastors are men. Only you are designated men. And non-Jews are not designated as men. It's one of those statements in the Gemara that might make us uh, feel a little bit uncomfortable. Um, and then we have from Shmot Rabba, a different statement made by the rabbis. The Holy One declares no creature unfit but receives all. The gates of mercy are open at all times, and he who wishes may enter. The exact opposite view that God is available, universally available to everyone. We have these contradictory statements throughout the rabbinic literature, throughout the Gemara, throughout the Mishrashim. Um, it's very difficult to point, pinpoint the rabbinic attitude towards other faiths. We have access to all these different ways of thinking about that. Okay. What I would like to do now um, is look at four theological attitudes 
from the early rabbinic period onward. Um, we'll look at four different theological categories in terms of how we think about other faiths, and we'll look at one particular thinker as an example of each of these four categories. But it is important to recall um, that these attitudes are often very much a reflection of when the particular Jewish thinker lived. So please keep that in the back of, of your mind. Um, and these categories are mentioned by Professor Alan Brill, amongst others, and kind of uh, try to encapsulate the theological spectrum from right to left. Um, and what, again, what we'll do is we'll define each category and we'll look at one thinker who I think is exemplary of that particular approach. Uh, as you read through this, I encourage you to think about some of the benefits, the strengths, and weaknesses of this approach for us as a community today. Okay, that's what I kind of want you to keep in your mind as we read through each of these texts. Um, okay, category number one is exclusivism. We're going to start all the way on the right end of the spectrum. Exclusivism. What is exclusivism? Exclusivism, as you may um, have thought, is there is only one true religion. One's own community, tradition, and encounter with God comprise the sole exclusive truth. All other claims of encountering God are false. There is one way to God, one way to salvation. If you are an exclusivist, it is your way. Okay? That's the exclusivist way of thinking. Now, what does that mean about people outside? Well, there within the text, non-Jews are often, for exclusivist Jewish thinkers, are either uh, bystanders, who don't really care about them, or antagonists. Um, and we'll actually look at the antagonistic uh, approach in just a moment. So what, um, as our representative thinker, we're going to look at a source from the Maharal, who lived from 1525 to 1609 in Prague. Um, he was a rabbi, very much a Renaissance thinker, did Kabbalah and philosophy, uh, those of you who know the Golem stories, that's the Maharal. Um, the Maharal lived at a time of pogroms, of intense um, Christian persecution and oppression of Jews. Um, and this is what he wrote. This is uh, Source 7. Israel and Edom. Edom, by the way, from the rabbinic mind, is the representative of Christians. Edom becomes associated with Rome and Rome with Christianity. So that's who Edom is when we come across that in our sources. Israel and Edom are inverse and opposite. When one is in ascent, then the other is in descent. Where does that come from? Right? Right? The, the bracha given to Yaakov and Asa, right? Asa is always the father of Edom. Um, at the beginning, Israel is connected to the nations like a shell around a fruit. At the end, the fruit is separated from the shell completely, and Israel is separated from them. The separation from idolaters makes a nation complete in itself and sustains the essence of Israel. Idolaters are compared to water. Now, interesting, he is not using what term here? Christians. He calls them idolaters. In, the rabbi, you know, in rabbinic writing, there is always a fear of having your books burnt, of being, right, of being found out. So often the terms, um, uh, the umota olam and the ovdei kochavim, there's a lot of interchangeable terms. Um, and we never know exactly who they're referring to. But, Idolaters are compared to water and Israel to fire. If the two substances, fire and water, are mixed together, the water puts out the fire. But if the fire remains distant and separate from the water, then the fire consumes and dries out the water until nothing is left. In truth, this is the uniqueness of Israel. Okay, from the Maharal's perspective, and this last metaphor is a great one, water and fire. If Jews are too close to their Gentile neighbors, they are water. They will put us out. 
But if we remain at a safe distance and the fire is a little bit away from the water, what will ultimately happen to the water? It will evaporate. He is arguing, again, we cannot succeed if the Gentiles are succeeding. Therefore, our sole concern is us promoting our values. One could argue that he would say we are living in a community. And this is an exclusivist way of looking at other religions. Um, the Maharal loved working with binaries. Right? Jews are sustaining the world while Gentiles could totally bring it down. They're the opponents of redemption. Um, and again, he creates an exclusivism based on the historical struggle um, between, between Jews and non-Jews. Uh, okay, Rashi on Torah, very similarly, Yaakov and Esav are always used as paradigms of our eternal struggle with the other, where both of us can be succeeding. Um, okay, what are the benefits of an exclusivist model as far as community goes? What might you argue is, yeah, this is the approach we should be taking. It's Judaism or nothing. We're right. Everyone else is totally wrong. A benefit to that model of thinking. Yeah. yeah. Right, nothing gets in the way. What else? Preservation. Right, preservation. Right, continuing the thought, the line. Um, creating a strong and dedicated community with a sense of mission and uniqueness. Right, that's who we are. No one should doubt. You know why you're doing all this stuff that can be really hard? Because it's true. Because it's right. Because if you want salvation, if you want to go to Ghana and to go to heaven, this is what you've got to do. God holds us and we're right. There's no other options available. So if you want a strong and dedicated community, you've got to teach this way. What potentially, however, could you see as some of the minuses of this way of thinking? Yeah? You make them into the other. Right, you make them into the other. It's right, it promotes isolation, narrowness, um, perhaps even a certain narcissism about the world surrounding, you know, revolving completely around Jews. Now, often thinkers who take on an exclusivist view, this is often, as I mentioned, explained historically. Rashi is not going to think the Christians are a really good group that we have a lot to learn from. And the question is, can we have accepted it? Having lived through the crusade. Right, so this is where exclusivism, and again, the thinker is often a representative of the historical period in which he lived. Moving on, that's category number one, exclusivist. Religion, your religion is the sole exclusive way to salvation. That's one potential model for us communally to think about how we engage with people of other faiths. Moving along the spectrum, category number two, inclusivism. Inclusivism argues that one religion is best, but weaker forms of truth are possible within other religions. Uh, one acknowledges that many other religious communities exist and have their own truth claims, um, but your truth claim is whole, doesn't need the other ones, but they have some truth as well. Um, and often in this model, other religions are derivations of Jewish concepts. So again, we're the best, but I recognize you have some goodness in you too. That's an inclusivist way of looking um, A great example of this is the Rambam. Um, the Rambam, 1138 to 1204, 1205, um, this actually, this section was edited out of the Mishnah Torah. This is from Hilchot at the very, very end of the Rambam's Mishnah Torah. And I remember uh, growing up, I, um, I was learning, I had to have a set of Rambam in high school, and my dad was like, oh, I found these in the YU Shamo pile. Somebody threw them away. And I always thought it was so cool, because they were learning from like, somebody else's Rambam, who knows where it's been before me, but it was a really, really old edition. And I was learning with my grandfather, and we actually were actually learning about the walking together, 
And I got up to the 11th parak, and my grandfather was reading actually from a newer edition of the Rambam, and I noticed that my book was missing. We were reading, and he was reading, and my book didn't have it. My edition of the Rambam was missing this whole section. This section, which we were about to read, was actually edited out. Edited out. Again, Jewish books having gone through so much censorship, especially the Rambam, was self-censorship. The Jews themselves took certain passages they thought would be, um, wouldn't blame, um, you know, they took them out themselves, or Christians uh, took them out, but this actually was edited out. So look, God, this is from the Rambam, Hechot Malachim, uh, 11.4. Even Jesus of Nazareth, who imagined that he was the Messiah, but was put to death by the court, Daniel had prophesied, as it is written, and the children of the violent among your people shall lift themselves up to establish a vision, but they shall stumble. For has there ever been a greater stumbling block than this? All the prophets affirmed that the Messiah would redeem Israel, save them, gather their dispersed, and confirm the commandments. But he caused Israel to be destroyed by the sword, the remnant to be dispersed and humiliated. He was instrumental in changing the Torah and causing the world to err and serve another beside God. Now at that point, what category would you place the Rambam in as far as the thinking? He seems very exclusive. But then there's a, a small shift. The human mind has no power to reach the thoughts of the Creator, for his thoughts and ways are unlike ours. All these matters of Jesus of Nazareth and the Ishmaelite Muhammad who stood up after him are only intended to pave the way of the anointed king and to mend the entire world to worship God together, etc. Thus the messianic hope, the Torah, and the commandments have become familiar topics of conversation among the inhabitants of the far isles and many peoples uncircumcised of heart and flesh. What is Rambam arguing here? Rambam arguing here. He's saying that while Christianity is a distortion of Judaism, incorrect theologically, it misled people, it became a persecutor of Israel. However, it does serve an important function in this world. Christianity and Islam were far more successful at spreading monotheism than Judaism ever was. And so actually there is a purpose to Christianity. There is a purpose to Islam. They spread the knowledge of the one God, the notion of commandment. To all the peoples of the earth, we were never that good. We like stayed in this teeny little area. And even that we struggled with. And then Christianity came, and for a couple centuries, the Roman Empire was Christian, and everyone's believing in one God. Right? We weren't good at that. So Rahman said, that's right. They're preparing the way for Mashiach. They're the ones that are preparing the way for the Messiah. They do have a function. So God's plan is, again, beyond human understanding. But the God of Christianity and Islam is the same God as Israel. And therefore, they do have some value. Uh, Yehuda Halevi, the Kuzari, also uh, took, a similar, took a similar approach. Uh, we don't have time to, to, to look at that right now. But, um, but if you're looking for another source, uh, yeah, the Kuzari also. Okay. Benefits of this type of communal understanding. We taught this as a theological framework for how we should relate to other faiths. What might you say is a good, why this is, what's strong about this approach? Okay, put the other in a category. What do you mean by that? Okay, so it gives a purpose to the rest of the world. Beyond just our antagonist. Anything else? Yeah. It relates them, so it allows us to feel in community people of other faiths, right? That we have commonalities, belief in God, a covenant, morality. It allows us, when looking at others, to identify that which we share. While at the same time doing what? 
We're able to maintain our own sense of supremacy while being somewhat open to other faiths having aspects of truth to them. I think it also accomplishes that if you see good in other religions, that shouldn't scare you that Judaism is not still the best religion. It's just, oh, if a religion is doing good in one particular area, it's just helping pave the way for Judaism. For our goals. Good. And that gets into what is potentially something that makes us uncomfortable about this approach. Yeah. So, it also kind of reflects a little bit as long as Christianity helped me in this because also this is like, because I was this part of the way that you're not entirely outside of Yeah, yeah. So it's like we can all get along because we all think of the, the other as partly other, partly other, and we kind of have to figure out how that makes sense. Yeah. You know, there's... The only thing I can imagine, sometimes when I look at the inclusivist approach, that it could be more problematic, I think, in terms of our discomfort than the exclusivist approach, is that there's something a little condescending or paternalistic about, like, I see good in you and thanks for helping our cause out. Right? Is that a good theological framework or model for us as a community to think we're the best and I know you think you're serving some other end, but you're really just helping us out and serving us, yeah. It's similar to what you were insulted when your friend mentioned. It's the same thing. Good, good. So we'll get back to that. Yeah, it's a similar, it's imposing our beliefs onto others as what is valuable. Yeah. Okay, so that's inclusivism. Okay, so exclusivism, soul exclusive, truth, salvation to God only by your own needs. Inclusivism, we're still supreme, but there are other truths that can be found, weaker forms of truth available in other religions. Category number three. Uh, category number three, I think, is the most difficult of the categories. I'm going to try to explain it. It'll be easier when we do category number four, but that is universalism. Universalism. Universalism argues uh, that, that there's one singular truth out there, and that that truth has been, ama- has been made available by God to the entire world. Okay? So religion is true. There's one truth that God has made available to absolutely everyone. So like certain truths about God, the soul, intellect, ethics, um, have again, are, are, are accessible to everyone. Uh, revelation comes and kind of proves them to be true. But technically from a universalistic perspective, you don't need revelation. And it's revelation that really ends up making us all, all very different. But again, universal truth is available to all humanity beyond but not against uh, revelation. There's no need to refer to Judaism as a singular truth because religion, God, the soul, intellect, morality only exists within one truth framework. And that framework has been made available um, by God to all humans. Uh, someone who you could argue early on took a universalistic approach or was Rasagyagos, Rasag. He lived 882 to 942, uh, leading rabbi, very early medieval Jewish philosopher. Uh, he used Plato and Aristotle uh, to produce a rational theology. And he, I think, was a universalist. If you look, um, this is his introduction to the Book of Beliefs and Opinions, source number nine. As for ourselves, uh, the community of monotheists, we hold these three sources of knowledge to, knowledge to be genuine. And he's talking about reason, logic, okay? To them, however, we added a fourth source, the validity of authentic tradition. This type of knowledge corroborates for us the validity of the first three sources of knowledge. The first three sources of knowledge, again, perception, um, reason, 
uh, logic. We all, all human beings have those faculties, and if they're developed enough, you could come to all religious truth. That's essentially his argument, that if you sat in an armchair long enough and thought, you would reach all the truths of Judaism. You actually don't need revelation. Revelation is only there because the whole time you're thinking, you're missing out on Judaism. So revelation just comes to corroborate. Ideally, from a perspective, you could go back and think through every truth, and that's actually our mission. Um, but from his perspective, again, because all human beings were created with these faculties, with the capacity to use reason in understanding God, um, we could all access that same, that same truth. Uh, religion is a universal phenomenon. Um, okay. Pluses or benefits to this way of understanding as a, as a communal theological approach. Well, it's interesting, a lot of universalist thinkers talk about the brotherhood of mankind. That we're all kind of in this great mission together. We have a common goal and a shared purpose. Um, another benefit is religion is not a human construct, um, but it does affirm that theism and ethics and revelation can be known naturally without any type of, uh, of revelation, which in modern times has been appealing and universalism in, you know, in modernity has gained popularity. Um, as far as the negatives, very difficult. Would everyone argue that universal truths are accessible through reason and logic? Much more complicated. The revelation only corroborates, it doesn't invent, it doesn't give new. Also, very controversial. Okay, everyone with me so far? I know I'm moving kind of fast, yeah. I'm not sure. I know you said you were going to explain the truth, but I'm not sure I understood it. Okay. What would Rosh Hashanah say about specific religion other than religion? So he would say those truths that we share, they're great. They're the exact same truths as ours because God made that accessible to everybody. So the, we all do believe in the same exact God. What about the truths that we don't share? Ah, so that's where things would get complicated if they came to the false conclusion. So you said they're mistakes. Right. They, they made mistakes, but it's, it's innocent. Right, it's innocent mistakes, and, um, and that's all. Uh, because number two will say they're mostly still negative. They're not mistakes, they're evils. Evils that have some goodness within. I think Rasab wouldn't see it as, as negative. Uh, practices that differ from us. And also, he might argue, let's get to pluralism, and then I think you'll see. It's similar to pluralism, which is probably a term you're more familiar with, but I'll explain to you how it's different, and that will help you see how, how you even out all those different manifestations. Okay? So pattern number four is pluralism. Uh, pluralism is now kind of on the left end of the spectrum. Pluralism argues that all, all religions have some truth. Uh, no one religion or tradition can claim to possess the entire singular truth because that's impossible. Everyone has access to a piece of the truth. And therefore, no one religion is inherently better or superior to any other. Um, we're all on paths to try to, to get to truth. And we all have different access points. Right? One thinker talks about like a spectrum. And some people might occupy, let's say, in 1 to 100, 20 to 35. And the next 35 to, you know, 50, whatever it is. And we're all kind of moving upward. Um, so pluralism sees the impossibility of universal truth available to all people. That's why in some ways it's exactly the opposite. The way I like would distinguish me in universalism the least 
fully developed, but like if you think about pluralism, we're starting down here, we, the religious community of humans, creating our own paths and access points to truth, whereas universalism would say there's truth, and it comes down in individual access points to people. Religion is, from a pluralistic perspective, is very human-centered. Human beings have constructed religious truth as ways, uh, religious paths as ways of accessing the truth, whereas so it's like a uh, bottoms-up way of thinking about it, whereas universalism is a top-down. There is that truth out there that's accessible, and it will come down through the reason, through, the reason, through rationale, through the intellect. And I know that's a little bit confusing, but that's how they're that's how they're how they're different. Universalism says there is one universal truth. Pluralism would say absolutely not. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, okay. Um, so each religion, again, is li- according to pluralism, has limited access to truth, and this is a very post-enlightenment way of thinking. Um, we're going to read an excerpt now from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Um, who the chief rabbi was, the formerly the chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, um, and who actually had to take back some of the comments we're about to read because his remarks came under attack from the Orthodox community, um, and he has printed a second edition of his work, The Dignity of Difference, but that's where this excerpt is from. So if you look, um, if you look at source number 10, let's look at that together. Uh, Judaism is a particularist monotheism. It believes in one God, but not in one religion one culture, one truth. The God of Abraham is the God of all mankind, but the faith of Abraham is not the faith of all mankind. There is a difference between God and religion. God is universal. Religions are particular. Because we know what it is, a, what it is to be a parent loving our children, not children in general, we understand what it is for someone else somewhere else to be a parent loving his or her children, not ours. Christians, Jews, Sikhs, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Jains, Orastrians, and Baha'i. Because though we do not share a faith, we surely share a faith. Whatever our faith or lack of faith, hunger still hurts, disease still strikes, poverty still disfigures, and hate still kills. Few put it better than the great Christian poet John Donne. Every man's death diminishes me, for I am involved in mankind. Um, what Sachs is saying here is his love of Judaism does not negate the love that others have for their religion. Um, and his argument here, again, he, Rabbi Sachs is really arguing that... Um, in the 21st century, religion needs to be part of the solution for issues in our global age. Um, and his fundamental axiom is that God offers is at the core of human dignity. Um, and he, his main point is that truth on earth is not can can never aspire to be the whole all-encompassing truth. It is limited. Religions are limited. Um, and his argument is actually based on the story of Mita Babel. God wants diversity. God wants people accessing him at different points and in different ways. Um, he says, in the course of history, God has spoken to mankind in many languages, through Judaism to Jews, Christianity to Christians, Islam to Muslims, um, which is like a theme that David Hartman said, right? God speaks Arabic on Fridays, Hebrew on Saturdays, and Latin on Sundays. It's a similar idea. Um, God created a world that appreciates the differences and unique contributions of each religion in building a moral society, um, etc. That is... That's pluralism. Now, what do you see as a potential benefit of for our community to take this theological approach to dealing with people of other faiths? Well, I think it's a 
Sorry? Politically correct. Feels very comfortable. Right? Um, it allows us to engage in interfaith dialogue, to have conversations, to be an open community that can really love and uh, show respect to everyone. Potential negative? Yeah. Uh, doesn't it sort of contradict certain religious tenets that relate to eschatology and the way we want the world to look and what we're doing with the world? Uh, potentially, you're right. On technicalities, it might get complicated, but as an, taking it as a universal ideal vision, he would argue, no, again, we don't want mass conversion. We just want everyone to kind of be themselves. You're right. The, the religions that one might argue are not monotheistic, complicated to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. What else is it potentally? And, and it's, yeah. Why do you do it? Right? I mean, why? If everything is equally valid, and we were really pluralist, what we should do in educating people is present the free market of religion, allow each religion to make its pitch to every human being, and let each person choose. And as Jews, we should be totally, if we're pluralistic, totally in favor of that. Find what's best for you. Now, I would argue that if you had to summarize our exact thesis of every single work, his goal is, I think, to maintain a pluralistic attitude and still make the argument for why you and you and you should be Jews. And that's his ultimate goal, to convince you why, despite pluralism, Judaism is still the best for Jews. That, I think, is, is kind of his... <coughs> Maybe you could uh, talk about this later, but that I think is is, is probably right like, to summarize his life work. That would be it. Um, but you can see it is potentially dangerous because if somebody says to you, "Listen, this isn't working for me," why would we say keep keep at it, keep trying? Oh, so find something else that works for you as far as accessing God. Okay. Again, again, moving along across the spectrum of of right to left, you have exclusivism. Inclusivism, universalism, pluralism. Okay? And these are four potential theological categories. They overlap. They're not neat categories. None of these thinkers, I just point this out, would self-identify in this way, right? Rashi wasn't walking around, oh, I'm an exclusivist. And Ram said, I'm an exclusivist. Right? These are categories we've imposed on their thinking in terms of helping us organize how to approach theologically other faiths and their lines. And you could find exclusivist writing in the Rambam. You could find universalism. Rav Cook, you know, who had universalism, certainly. You also see some exclusivism. So we're taking paragraphs and we're attempting to make meaning out of specific writings. Again, and I think it's because we need help constructing a communal attitude towards, um, towards other religions and thinking about how we educate as a community. Um, and again, we need to have an open discussion where where do these views come from? What's appropriate for us now living in 21st century America? Would this look different if we lived in a community in a different country dealing with different issues? And what does it mean to, again, pass along a love, tolerance, respect, these values that we as Americans hold and cherish quite deeply, but still wanting our youth to maintain a very firm commitment to their Judaism. And how do we think about this in terms of our own self-identity as Jews? I don't want to use that really that word that makes us uncomfortable, but chosenness, right, is one of those issues that we're the chosen people are so uncomfortable with that. Um, how do we make sense of that today, going forward and thinking again about our own self-identity? And I think, aside from the communal level, um, on an individual level, it might look very different. 
And I kind of want to spend just the next couple of minutes talking about, again, I put on the table as far as a communal approach, some possibilities and what we need to think through. But what about us as individuals? Because I think probably for most of us, that's where we're going to encounter people of other faiths uh, most often. And um, I think, again, we can perhaps draw a distinction between a communal and individual approach. For most individuals, we interact in business, politics, social circles, in our educations. And what's interesting about us as Jews in America is we have a lot of expectations um, of non-Jews. For example, and to get into the business world, right? We expect people to understand and not resent the fact that we are going to leave early and do a Shabbat every single Friday. And in the winter, that means you are there for half a day. Okay? Uh, we're going to take off the month of September when all the Chagim fall on weekdays that they somehow do every year, right? Um, yeah, we expect that people will be understanding. Uh, a corporate event should obviously have a kosher food option. right? These are expectations that we, certainly living in New York City, have when we look at the world. And what, where does that come from? Um, we have the expectation that people should understand the importance of these things to us. They should get our values, that these are significant. That I'm going to quit my job rather than be Mechal al Shabbat. So you understand that and don't be upset when I leave early on a Friday afternoon. Um, and I think given that there is a lot of inter- interaction um, to relate to people and have them relate to you, we have to have some understanding. And I think that tolerance or respectful thinking comes from not assuming that you know a lot about the other. Okay? You can't assume you know a lot about another person's faith values and traditions. Um, I'm saying this because I think we sometimes here in our community, and I find this upsetting, um, for this at a Shabbat table, I don't understand. Jerusalem is not even important to Muslims. It's not in the Quran. What do they care? You know, the reason that attitude I find difficult is you're going to decide what's important to another faith tradition. I'm sure there are many uh, business owners who look at Jews and say, barely any Jews keep Shabbat. It's not that important. And the majority of Jews are not Shomer Shabbat. So come on. Stay till, you know, 6 o'clock or whatever on a winter Shabbat. If we want that kind of respect, we can't go in assuming that we have a deep understanding of someone else's values and what is important to them um, in their faith tradition. And I think that if believers actually try to understand each other from without imposing our own categories, that would lead to respect and tolerance. Uh, would lead to respect and tolerance. Don't impose your religious categories on someone else. It's okay that Jesus is not a part of my life. That's okay. Right? Um, in the study of religion, we also often talk about the insider-outsider dynamic. Right? The outsider is view is the view from the outside. Right? The perspective of the, of the theoretically dispassionate observer whose observation does not necessarily influence the observed. And the insider is a practitioner. Right? The people who are engaged and more or less committed to the group or society in which they move. And these groups have boundaries which are super impossible uh, to cross. And we have to make sure that we don't impose our own religious categories and understandings and standards and values on others. Just because it's a good, plausible theory 
doesn't make it true. And again, we do this all the time. Let me give you an example. This is a true story. Um, when Joe Lieberman was nominated to be vice president, there was an article written that said that he went into synagogue that Sabbath, the entire congregation rose and read the Ten Commandments out of respect for Senator Lieberman. Okay, now, what is true in that statement? Senator Lieberman walked into shul. The congregation rose and read the Ten Commandments. What's not true? But they did it for him. It was Parshat Vatanam, um, where we read the second retelling of the Ten Commandments. We use that tradition to stand during that reading, and that's what we did. If you have an in-depth, if you're an insider with Judaism, you will know we are not going to change liturgy for anybody who walks into a room. We have our traditions, and we stick to them, and I don't care if Obama could have walked in, we would not have stood up and recited the Ten Commandments. Unless that's the weekly portion of the rest of the state, we would have done it. Okay, and again, just because something's plausible, a theory is plausible, doesn't make it true. We have to make sure that when we read newspapers, when, we, uh, when we're reading books, seeing movies, that if we're given a presentation of another faith, we hear insider voices. I, I told this to my students. Okay, imagine the following. A religious anthropologist walks into shul, um, knowing a bit about Judaism on a weekend at a bar mitzvah. Okay? So standard Orthodox rule. And what, he writes down the following observation. Uh, the young man is reading from the Torah at the front of the room, and as that's happening, somebody is giving out, a woman is giving out candy bags to all the women. Okay? And he's thinking, oh, why did they put Hershey Kisses in there? Okay? It should have been marshmallows. Anyway, what happens? The boy is done. Okay? And what... Happens right then, the women all stand up and they've been pelting the young men with candy. Okay? And often what you will see at these bar mitzvahs is what does the bar mitzvah boy do? He lifts whatever, the sitter or whatever it is, and does this, right? That's natural human instinct to protect their faces. And he begins writing the candy, hitting the, hitting the homage or hitting the sitter or whatever it is. And this religious anthropologist constructs the following theory. Right? As this young boy accepts the yoke of heaven and makes the vote, uh, candy, the temptation of his youth, is thrown at him by women, the tempters of his future. <laughs> and to show his resolve, he lifts the Bible or the prayer book to show that only dedication to commandment, dedication to God, will be his protection from all temptation. That is beautiful and totally worth and it's totally not true. That actually convinced the group of my students that that was why we did it. It's, no, that is not why we did it. The idea about the Torah being sweet, etc. But it, right, it's just because it's plausible. If you ask right, a practicing Jew knows something, why you do that, they would have told it to you. So just again, being uh, cautious. And I would think also we take we take for granted all the time our own vocabulary and kind of what it is to be an insider, so that we don't even realize some of the terms we use. That if you were an outsider studying us, you'd be really freaked out. For example, right? Um, you know, I'm not Jewish, but I'm a Jewish studies major. I'm really interested in this stuff. I learned all about Peter Shachan. What is that? The sanctification of God's name through martyrdom. And I happen to be visiting a Jewish day school. And the fifth grade class is taking a trip to the Museum of Natural History. And I overhear the teacher saying, Kids, we got to make a tradition study right there. Okay. Now, I know what the teacher means. Don't act like jerks. Right? Be quiet and respectful and whatever while we walk through the museum. But... Is that teacher asking his children to martyr, them, martyr themselves, right, in front of the big dinosaurs? I mean, 
No, we know. But because, again, we have so much language that we're familiar with from being insiders. Again, just because something is plausible doesn't mean it's true. We have to always make sure that when we're thinking about other religions, we're actually getting the insider perspective, that we're hearing the voices of practitioners. Uh, we come in with a lot of assumptions, right? That religious anthropologist I described in the school came in with a lot of assumptions about Judaism, about male and female roles, about the role of Torah in our lives, right? that then become imposed. I would say this, one of my friends, um, religious Christians, always wore dresses to church, would never dream of going to church in anything but a nice dress. She went to a Muslim worship service. Women are not allowed to show their ankles. It is much more respectful in a Muslim service for a woman to wear pants. But again, she walked in and she knew this. She said, I can't go to a religious service in pants. Again, we can't help it. All the time we're imposing and thinking through our, um, and putting our own values on others. So how do we not do that? Okay, when it comes to the study of religion, and I know we have a minute, so I'm going to wrap this up. When it comes to the study of religion, there are multiple perspectives you can take. The one that I find most helpful in engaging in this process of respectful thinking is the phenomenological perspective. But before I get to that, I want to talk about the other two. Uh, the first is the theological perspective. This is the approach taken by most um, high schools, the way we teach Tanakh, the way we teach Gemara. It starts by assuming that the divine, however it is defined, is real, that religion is a response to spiritual realities. And again, crudely put, when a believer prays, someone out there is listening. That's the theological approach, and that's kind of how we teach Tanakh and Gemara. Stand. That approach was the only approach for much of history. Right, especially at the times where people, religion was the great science. Um, but post-enlightenment, that shifted. And then we had the popularity of what was called the reductionist perspective. The reductionist perspective um, was no longer really interested in thinking about the religious um, truths or ultimate truth claims of religion, but wanted to understand the origins of religion and its social and political significance and impact, how it functioned in society, etc. And that's where you get thinkers like Marx and Freud who are reductionists, right? Because to them, when a believer prays, no one is listening. So we're not really concerned with that experience. What we're concerned is how communities operate, what are the effects of religion, where does religion begin, how does it function? It's, it's sociological and psychological, and that's a reduction. Difficult in taking... Either of those perspectives, when approaching other faiths, I think is not a respectful perspective to take. Uh, but then, more recently, there's been, and this is still in development, um, a perspective called the phenomenological perspective. Okay, the phenomenological perspective. Um, this developed um, as an attempt to see religion as an enduring human phenomenon, where instead of questioning the truth of a religious claim, you are more interested in understanding how a believer experiences his or her faith. So you bracket, so to speak, your own practice, your own values, your own assumptions, and you're only interested in learning about how another person experiences their own belief system. So in this perspective, when a believer prays, what matters is that the believer believes a divine being is listening. Whether or not you think one actually is, it's irrelevant. You're interested in actually the faith experience of a particular individual. Um, this is sometimes called empathetic objectivity. But this developed in the 60s and 70s when there was a need for thinking about and talking about religion in a non-judgmental and open way, in a way where insiders wanted to share. 
Because if your approach was reductionist, who wanted to share when you thought I'm ridiculous, you don't think what I'm doing means anything. And this allowed insiders to share much more freely. Um, the reason I find that this approach is really helpful, and, 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 and I, it might be for some of you innate, this is just what you've always done, but I think it requires further articulation and development in terms of our individual interactions, that if we really want to develop sensitive thinking, that we train ourselves to be able to do that, to appreciate what religion feels like from the perspective of the other, and not impose our own religious categories onto anybody else, not impose our own religious values. We encounter people of many different of faith of many different levels. Okay, as a community, again, I started this class with talking about various theological approaches that we can take, and I think more often as individuals. And that's really what's important, I think, for us tonight. Um, we encounter people all the time who we know very little about and whose faith very much has shaped and continues to shape our and play a part as part of our destiny. Um, I think we have the potential to live in a world, and this is really the ideal, where we don't feel a need to sacrifice our values and our faith commitments, but at the same time we can be open and available to the faith commitments and listening um, to the faith commitments of others. I'll just end with a very quick story. Um, so I remember in, in Divinity School, you know, around this time of year when Mincha is really early, and I used to class until the afternoon, and I remember the first time I realized I had to dive in Mincha, um, and I wasn't going to make it back home. And I was like, trying to figure out where am I going to go, where is it going to be comfortable, I'm in the library. Like, and um, I remember, I was like, oh, I should find a phone booth, but since it's the 21st century, there's no such thing anymore, so that wasn't a possibility. But I was looking around trying to figure it out, and I remember the moment that it hit me, and I was like, I'm going to dive right here in the library. Because I, I'm surrounded by people who not only have a respect for religion, which is one level and it's beautiful, and we could get to that, that would be amazing, but who actually want me to dive into my God in the afternoon when I'm being called to do so. And that, that's the value that a community of believers can have. Um, and ultimately, as I said, a place like Divinity School, you know, when I think about it as a model for what religious community could be, um, I think that as a community of believers, we and the other believers, we share this really uh, beautiful commonality where, and I think the ultimate goal is that we should be in a place where it's not just I respect you, it's I want you to fully embrace your tradition, to love it, to find meaning, and I want you to feel that way about me. And I think that's more than coexistence. It's a community, uh, a community of love, and I hope that um, we'll see more of that and develop it within, within our lifetime. Thank you very much for listening.